bow your heads in prayer with me today. God, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. This Christmas season when we celebrate you coming into this world to fix us because we were broken, because we have rebelled. And this morning as we identify who you are, I pray that you would continue to identify who we are together in this church as a body of believers. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. Good morning, Banner Church. Good morning. Uh, my name is Jamin Metcalf. Those of you who haven't met me, uh, my dad is Pastor Dana. Uh, and my dad asked me a few months ago uh, if I would come and deliver a sermon sometime before the end of the year. Um, so I, he asked me what it was that I might be passionate about, that I might like to speak on. Um, and as those of you who know me might know, uh, I am a history teacher. So I am very into the past and what that means to us as a people. And so I told him that around Christmas, I would really, really love to preach a sermon on the genealogy of Jesus. I know, the dullest part of the Christmas story. Uh, but we're going to make it through today, and I'm hoping that I can turn that genealogy, which typically I, most of us skip when we read the Christmas story. I want to turn that into something that really gives significant meaning to who Jesus is, to the significance of the Christmas season, and then to who we are as believers, as a body uh, of Christ followers. So that's what we're going to do today, um, is try to go through that. And, and Christmas already really is my favorite time of the year. I, I, is anybody else Christmas is your favorite? I mean, I know it's, it's typical, right? I, I, it's cliche to say that Christmas is your favorite holiday, but it really is. It's the best one. It has the best traditions. You don't get presents on Easter. Uh, you may get a little candy from your mom, but it's not the same as a new bike. On Thanksgiving, you may come together and eat turkey but there's no tree inside your house. You don't set up lights outside your house uh, and then bring the tree in. Uh, some of the traditions of Christmas really are so wonderful. Um, and I really love all of those little ones. Uh, but I remember growing up, I think that my favorite tradition that my own family practiced was that every year, uh, when Christmas came around, we woke up Christmas morning. My brother and I, Jensen, who's here back from college, say it, uh, we would run downstairs as little kids excited to open Christmas presents. And my parents would come down the stairs, and they would gather us together. And before we did anything, before we ate breakfast, before we started opening any presents, we would all sit down together as a family. Typically, Jensen and I would just sit on the floor and my dad would grab the family Bible, and he would open it up either to Luke or to Matthew, uh, and he would read the Christmas story to us as a family. And that was beautiful. It really was. It was taking a moment in the hustle and bustle of the Christmas season to sit down and understand what it is truly that we're celebrating what it is the context of this holiday. Um, now, interestingly enough, as, as with most people who read the Christmas story, uh, my dad typically would skip 
those first few verses of Matthew that go into the genealogy of Jesus, and it's for good reason, because that genealogy goes through 42 generations, and a lot of the names are really difficult to pronounce. So we don't read it very often, but we would go through that story. But since that time, I've come to see that really the genealogy is an important part of the story for one key reason. And that, has, that is that the, pers- the, the, the purpose of a genealogy in general, and specifically the genealogy in Matthew and in Luke, is it is giving identity to who Jesus is. Who is this baby that is being born in the first century of the province of Judea, at the height of the Roman Empire under Caesar Augustus? Why? Why do we care about this child that is being born? And the answer to that question is answered in the genealogy itself. So we're going to dissect that uh, today and go through it. And I think that one of the reasons we need to do so is that I think that people mostly like Christmas, not so much for the presents, not so much for the time with family, but there's something about Christmas that reminds us almost as if we've been living our whole year in a dream and we get a hint that we might be dreaming and that there's a greater reality. Because the Christmas season is when we are reminded, when we look at the story of Christ, of who we really are as human beings and who this Savior is that came for us. The rest of the year, many of us, we live in an identity crisis, especially in the United States today. I I think that we really are in an identity crisis. There are so many things in this world that tell us that you have to place yourself and who you are in those things. This has been accelerated because of things like social media. There's this idea that our identity is planted in the pictures we put online and the status posts we put online. There's also our jobs and our education where we try to say that uh, people ask us who we are and we say, well, I'll tell you guys, I'm a teacher. That's who I am. And we try to put our identity in a ton of different things. We put identity into some of our relationships. We put identity into the things that we're good at. We put identity into our health. But the Christmas story reminds us what our true identity is by reminding us who Jesus' true identity is. And I think that that is really, really important. Uh, The genealogy, when we are looking at it, there are two questions we really need to ask that follow this point. Two questions. The first question is, what does the genealogy tell us about the identity of this person we call Jesus. And the second question, which is tied to the first, is what does the genealogy tell us about our own identity? Okay? So we're going to go into this. We're going to dissect it. And forgive me if I get a little bit, uh, 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 if you feel like you're in a high school classroom. Uh, That's just the way that I operate. I'm sorry. But I'm going to try to keep it as exciting as possible, even though it, it can be a dull topic. I'm going to move us through this, okay? Uh, so, uh, understanding the context of where we're going is really important, and understanding the context of the Christmas story. Uh, if you are missing context, 
and missing that beginning part of a story. Sometimes you make mistakes in your interpretation. Uh, uh, an example of this, uh, when I was in middle school, I remember uh, when I first went to one of my new schools, my seventh grade year, I met a girl in my class, and she told me that her name was Summer Breeze. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, Summer Breeze, that's an interesting name. And uh, being someone who tries to make friends by being funny uh, and often getting myself into trouble, I met her and was talking with this girl named Summer Breeze, and I thought I would kind of make fun, in a friendly way, uh, of this kind of strange name that she had. And so I said, Summer Breeze. I was like, what was your mom thinking when she named you Summer Breeze? Like, what does she have against fall? Like, and I said this, and Summer, immediately her eyes started welling with tears. And she put her head into her hands, and I stood there frozen. And I was like, oh, the summer breeze has turned into a winter freeze. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and uh, one of her friends ran over and started comforting her. And when she realized what it was I had said, she looked at me and she said, you jerk. Don't you know that summer's mom died last year? Yeah, yikes is right. This is why we need a savior. I am the chief of sinners. And I felt horrible. I felt so horrible. And I really didn't mean anything by the joke. I was just trying to put up witty banter. It wasn't really that witty. It was a bad joke to begin with. But it was made doubly worse because I didn't know her context. I didn't know where she was coming from. And so if we really want to understand the Christmas story and understand who Jesus is, it might be important to know where it is he's coming from. And that might change the way that we behave around him. The way that, that uh, I might have changed my behavior around Summer Breeze uh, had I had known the, the tragedy of her past. Uh, so we're going to jump into that today. First thing we need to lay down that's really, really important is what is this word genealogy? I've been using it for about five minutes, and I'm sure that there's some of us who have been going along with it going, okay, yeah, yeah, I've heard genealogy before. I know the word kind of. I'm not really sure what it means, though, but I won't say anything. I don't want to look dumb. Uh, that's okay. Genealogy actually is the wrong word that we use. We, in most of your Bibles, the English translation, and, and by the way, we're going to be staying mostly in, in Matthew chapter 1. So if you guys want to turn to Matthew chapter 1, this will be really helpful for you. Thing that we need to understand is that genealogy, the word itself, is not really the word that's used in the original Greek language, the Greek writing of the New Testament. The original word that is used is genesis. Genesis. Genesis is the Greek word that we typically translate directly into English as Genesis. Now, Genesis means both in Greek and in the English translation, it means beginning or origin or birth. And so Matthew tells us at the beginning of his gospel that I'm going to tell you the genealogy or the genesis, the origin, the birth of Jesus Christ and where he came from. 
okay? So this is really important. Now, why, if he's going to tell us about the birth of Jesus, the beginning of this Christ, this Messiah, why begin with a list of his great, 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 great grandfathers all the way down to him? Here's why. Genealogies in the ancient world were extremely important to laying out an identity. And, here, and the reason for this is that in the ancient world, they lived in what was called an inheritance culture. We don't live in that anymore today. In America, we tend to draw our identity as self-made people. We like to have the myth of being the self-made man, the rags-to-riches story. So it doesn't matter where you came from, who your parents were. If you are going to work hard... You can set up your own identity and be successful in this culture. Define yourself. In the ancient world, it didn't work that way. In the ancient world, you had to draw your identity from who it is that came before you because who came before you determined your inheritance in terms of wealth. This is how you received land and property and a home. It determined your identity in terms of your citizenship it determined your identity in terms of social status. If you were born at a certain level of society that your parents went back to, that is where you had to stay. It was connected from your lineage all the way through. And so in the ancient world, if you asked somebody who they were to define themselves, you said, hey, Joseph, who are you? I'm talking about Jesus' supposed father. Hey, Joseph, who are you? In today's culture, he would say, oh, I'm Joseph, I'm a carpenter. And that would be the first thing he would probably tell you. In the ancient world, it wouldn't be so. The carpenter would come secondary. The first thing he would tell you is, I am Joseph, son of Heli, who was the son of blank, the son of blank, the son of blank. That I am connected through the lineage of the Hebrew people. Now, here's the other thing. In the ancient world, inheritance, super important but it was doubly so for the Hebrews themselves. Not just the Gentiles that were around there, but for the Hebrews themselves, and here's why. Because what it meant to be a Hebrew, to be an Israelite, was that you were an inheritor of the promise that was made to Abraham 2,000 years before. So, that was how it transferred to you. Because you were born with a father and a mother who were Hebrew, you then received that blessing and that inheritance of Abraham on your life. Now, we're going to go into a little bit of detail on what that promise exactly was. But Abraham, long before, if you guys remember in the Old Testament, makes this covenant with Yahweh, which is the, the Hebrew word for their God. It means I am or he is. He makes this covenant with Yahweh going up. And Yahweh tells him that I will bless you, I will bless your family, I will multiply you into a great nation, and through you, I will bless all the families of the world. And so if you were a Hebrew, you inherited that identity and that blessing from Abraham. So you have to understand, in, the, and in this time, people kept very detailed records of their lineage, going back generations, all the way back to David, all the way back to the patriarchs of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all the way back even to Adam and Eve. That far, they would keep these detailed records of the generations coming down so that they could know that I am a descendant of this promise. I have inherited this chosen place 
in this movement of salvation in the world. Okay? So that's important to understand. Whew, we made it through. Now we can actually look at the text a little bit and understand what it is that Matthew and Luke tell us specifically. So if you have your Bibles, if you have not already, open it up to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to start looking at this. So Matthew chapter 1, there are two genealogies in the gospel. We have this one that begins in Matthew chapter 1, and it goes back 42 generations all the way to Abraham. And then there's another one in Luke chapter 3, which actually takes us 70 or so generations all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, there's a reason that the two are very different, and they're very different. I'll explain that in a second. Matthew is writing his gospel mainly to the Jewish people at the time period, trying to tell them that this person who has just been born, this is the fulfillment of the Messiah promise that's been made to the Jewish people. Luke is doing the same thing, except his audience is typically the Gentiles. So he is trying to explain how Christ is fully human, but also fully God. So you have these two different purposes in that. He, he also connects him to Abraham and to David in that way. But you'll notice if you look at the text, when we look at this, uh, if you've read either of these before, you will notice that out of the 42 generations in Matthew, only about five of the generations actually match with Luke. They're completely different genealogies. They only match when it gets to the big players, those of David, David, Abraham, and going through the patriarchs. Everywhere else, even starting with Joseph's father, so Jesus' grandfather is different. It's a different name. They don't correlate in any way. Now, some people have looked at this and they've said, ah, there's a mistake in the Bible. We found it. He has two different genealogies. They don't match. So this is proof that he is not the Messiah. It is not so. <laughs> and allow me to explain. Matthew, when he looks at this, let's look at the, verse, the first verse here. He introduces us to it. He says, the book of the genealogy or the genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, let me point out as well that when he says this, he is making a bold, bold statement. He is basically saying that the book of the beginnings, the origins of Jesus, which Yeshua, there was a common name used at that time, and Yeshua means God saves or Yahweh saves. And then he says, Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you know Christ was not actually Jesus' last name? Hopefully you know that. Christ was not his last name. Christ actually comes from the Greek word Christos, which is this equivalent to the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. Christos also means anointed one. So he is saying that Jesus, this Yahweh saves, is the Messiah, the anointed one who has come to save us. And we're going to talk about in just a second, really significant, so of anointed one. Then he says, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He is connecting him right away 
when he connects him to the son of David, you have to understand that at that time period in Judea, the, the Jews were oppressed by the Roman Empire, which had taken them over in those recent years. And they were hoping, praying for a Messiah, an anointed one, that would come through the lineage of David and reestablish the kingdom that David originally established. And in this kingdom, it would last forever and the people of God would be gathered together again and live under the peace and the law of God for all eternity. They were waiting for this. So when he says, son of David, Matthew is going right away saying, hey, you know that, that Messiah you've been looking for? We found him. Okay? Then he says, son of Abraham. And so he's connecting him to the son, uh, to Abraham, that Abrahamic covenant, which we will go into detail in just a second. And then he goes down, and, and Matthew, I'm, I'm going to spare you, you're welcome, reading through the entire genealogy, uh, because it is 42 names in Matthew, and it's even longer in Luke. So I'm going to spare you this, but I want to hit some of these highlights. Understand that what's going on here in Matthew is that Matthew when he traces this genealogy, he's actually tracing the legal genealogy of Christ. Understand if we believe in the virgin birth, which Matthew tells us about later in the chapter, this immaculate conception of Jesus, Joseph is not really Jesus' father. He's his stepfather. So what Matthew is doing is saying, I'm going to give you the legal genealogy of Jesus Christ going all back so that you can see that legally he is entitled to that promise given to David, to the promises given to Abraham all the way back. But he does something significant. Ancient ge genealogies never, ever, especially in the Hebrew, ever mention women. They don't. It was common practice. Uh, this was purposeful. Your lineage didn't go through your mother. It went through your father in a legal basis. But Matthew breaks tradition. This is interesting. Some of the names he mentions, he actually mentions four women as he's going through the narrative, giving them an inheritance to the Christ person. So he is inheriting Abraham, he's inheriting those promises made to David, but he also has an inheritance that seems to us very strange. These four women he mentions are not exactly heroes of the ancient text. Three out of the four of them were actually guilty of egregious sexual sin. He mentions, and, and the other one that wasn't guilty of the sexual sin was actually a Gentile. She wasn't even a Hebrew. And that's Ruth that he mentions. He also mentions Tamar, who was raped by her brother and therefore guilty of incest. He also mentions Rahab, who was a prostitute. And he mentions Bathsheba, who we all know very well, committed adultery with David. And so it's very fascinating that in giving the inheritance of these great historic figures of the Hebrew faith, he's also bringing in the lowest of the low. He brings in and makes sure that we know that Jesus also comes from the lineage of sinners and the lineage of broken people, people at the bottom of the social structure in ancient times. Okay. 
Luke's is a little bit different in chapter 3. If you want to turn to chapter 3, verses 23 through 38, I'll go very quickly through this one. Luke, like we said, is writing to the Gentile audience. Now, Luke does something very significant. Luke, being a historian, because Luke was a historian at the time, uh, as you can see in his compilation book, Luke and Acts, which was written as one whole piece to give the history of salvation. Luke follows the tradition precisely that you cannot mention women when you are doing a genealogy. However, Luke is not tracing the legal lineage of Christ, but the biological lineage from Mary all the way back to Adam and Eve at the creation of humanity itself. Okay. This is significant, what he's doing. What he is doing in, in pointing out the biological lineage of Mary, and now you'll notice in the text if you look at it, it says in your Bibles, it will say, son of Joseph, who was the son of Heli. That's an inaccurate translation in your Bibles, and here's the reason, is that we don't use definite articles in English in front of names. You wouldn't say, the Josh led worship today beautifully. You don't. Uh, in, the, in Greek, however, you can use a definite article in front of a name, and it actually denotes something interesting. When you use a definite article in front of it, it's like using someone's last name, because it didn't really have last names back then. So calling someone the Joseph could be like saying the Metcalfs, the Wiseboroughs. So it references uh, the family as a whole, or at least a couple as a whole, a husband and wife, by using the husband's name as an identifier. So the actual text would read that Jesus is the son of the Joseph, son of Heli, referencing the biological lineage going from the Joseph or Mary to her father going up and so it's giving the biological heritage. So Jesus has this legal heritage coming through his father, although Jesus is not the biological son of Joseph. And then we have the biological lineage going through Mary. And here's the thing, where they do line up, Luke and Matthew, is the most important parts. Both Mary and Joseph are descendants of David, of Judah, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are descendants of all these people together. And so what we have is Jesus being identified fully with the inheritance of the biblical narrative. Okay? So, here's where we're left. The genealogy tells us that Jesus is for things. He is the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and finally and probably most significantly, the son of God. Now we need to go into what exactly this means for us today. In being the son of Abraham, he is an inheritor of that great covenant that was given to the Hebrew people through God. 
Or uh, let's start with Adam first. I'm sorry. It'll make more sense if we start with Adam. If we start with Adam, what this is saying in, in significance here, and now understand that in the Hebrew, Adam means man. That is the Hebrew word for man or mankind. So in saying that he is the son of Adam, it is saying that he is of biological lineage. He is man. Jesus is not just God, but he is made flesh. And in doing so, he shares in the inheritance of Adam. Now, what is the inheritance of Adam? Well, here's what we know. One of the fundamental truths of the Christian faith of understanding our identity is that we share together because we are human beings. We are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve and therefore share in the fall. This is something that we know all too well, that we are sons and daughters of sin, sons and daughters of brokenness and pain and suffering and rebellion because of that first rebellion in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and therefore received that knowledge. Since that rebellion, the world has been in a tailspin of chaos. And we know this. This is coming up to the biblical narrative that all this oppression, all this violence against each other, that, that we're hopeless. And that's really the first fundamental truth of the Christmas story. That if, if you've lost hope in humanity... If you've watched the news and said to yourself, like, there's just no hope for us, you're right. There is no hope for humanity in ourselves. We're hopeless. We can't do it. We're broken. We're in the state of rebellion, and we can't get out. We can't be faithful. And so what this is saying in the genealogy, when it connects Jesus to Adam, it's saying that Jesus is taking on that rebellion, the nature of that sin, taking it into himself. He is becoming part of his rebellious creation of humanity, and he's going to change things around. Now, in Genesis 3.15, if you have time to turn there really quick, in Genesis 3.15, we also see another promise that is made to Adam and Eve. When God kicks them out of the garden, he curses Adam and Eve and the serpent who tempted them. The serpent being a representation of evil, of the devil, of that which tempts us, right? And he says to this serpent, and listen to this very carefully, I will cause hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head, referring to the offspring of the woman, the seed of the woman. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This, my friends, is not a verse that is telling us why you hate snakes. That's not what this is talking about. It's not telling us why uh, if a snake gets in your house, your mom might jump and go, oh, no, get the snake away from me. That is not what it's saying. What this is saying is that the offspring of the woman and the offspring of evil are going to be an eternal battle until one day the offspring of a woman, the seed of a woman, a.k.a. Mary, is going to stomp his heel on the head of evil and kill it. And in doing so, it will strike his heel. It will bite him. But 
he will not be faced. And this is a prediction of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ stomping out evil. So this is significant that Matthew and Luke are telling us that he is a son of Adam. He is fulfilling this prophecy. Second, what he does is he is the son of Abraham. If you go to Genesis 12, you get to see the verse where Abraham makes his covenant with Yahweh. And Yahweh tells him, he says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Understand that the covenant promise made to Abraham is that the Hebrew people themselves would be a great nation and represent God to this world. But that one day, that blessing would extend to all the families of the earth, all people. And Jesus is about to fulfill that in himself, extending the blessing of Abraham to the whole world. Then going on to the son of David, like we said before, this idea of the Messiah coming in the lineage of David. The promise that's made to David is in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and it says, I will raise up your descendants after you. He will come forth from you. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And this is the prediction coming true in the Christmas season, in the birth of Christ. Finally, the kingdom is back. The kingdom and the authority of God is now coming into the world, invading the world, and we are becoming citizens of that kingdom. And fourth and finally, being the son of God, both genealogies at the very end of them give us the truth that Jesus was not a natural baby. He was not born of Joseph and Mary, but he was born of immaculate conception of God invading the world and performing a miracle. And so he was a son of Adam, a son of man, but he was also divine. He is the Son of God. And we are told in Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. God invades the world in the Christmas story. And so the identity that we can give him, the due that we can give him by looking at the genealogy is that he is son of Adam, son of man, son of Abraham, son of David, and son of God. Now you may be asking, that's really cool, Jamin, um, but why do we need to know that and what are we supposed to do about it? That's a great question because sometimes it's difficult for us to wrap our head around. Well, here's the interesting thing. We answered the first question of what does the genealogy tell us about Christ? But now we have to answer the second question. What does the genealogy tell us about you and me and who we are? Understand that up till now, up till the birth of Jesus in 2017 years ago, 
We were only inheritors, truly, of one of these four names. We are all sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We've inherited pain, suffering, brokenness. And we've tried to place our identities in different places to get rid of that identity itself, the identity of rebellion, but we can't do it. We've tried, many of us still are trying to this day, to put in ourselves our own identity, but we can't make it. And the beautiful thing about the Christmas message is that in identifying who this Messiah is, this child who was born, we discover that this child was born in order for us to be reborn. C.S. Lewis puts this really elegant, elegant, uh, elegantly, sorry, perfect word to mess up on. He puts this so beautifully when he says, the Son of God became man to enable men to become sons of God. Let me say that one more time. The Son of God became man to enable men, you and me, to become sons of God, something that we couldn't do on our own. And we are told in Ephesians 1 that in love, he, referring to Christ, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. You and I today, if you are a Christian, what Jesus has done for you is he has been birthed into the world and then called you to be reborn. Because you have your natural birth as, a, as an inheritor of Adam, but Christ is saying, I want to give you the inheritance of Abraham, the inheritance of David, the inheritance of God, and invite you in to a brand new identity in which it is based in me. It comes from me. You are an heir to my promises. The inheritance is yours. And that really is the Christmas story. That is why we celebrate with such fervor the birth of this person. That is why we are living in the year 2017, Anno Domini, AD, meaning year of our Lord. Our whole history is divided from the point where God came into the world to enable us to escape it. We are now, he has invaded our lives. He has brought a new identity so that we can share in that new promise of being holy and righteous and reconciled unto him into being brought as citizens into his kingdom, as children into his household. We are being adopted today. So I want to end with this. If any of you are here today and maybe you've never received that new identity, that new adoption, being born again in Christ, I want to give you a chance today to receive that to receive this new identity, to shuck off the identities you've built for yourself, the ways that you've tried to escape the curse of Adam, and to finally give over your identity to Christ and let him fill it. Second person I want to talk to today is those of you who have been born again, 
who have received the inheritance of God's promise, but have forgotten it. Those of you who just in the busyness of life, in the fear and the pain that is in us, that we experience in so many different ways, have lost sight of Christ's identity, and have also lost sight of who you are in relation to him. So as the band starts to play, I want to invite you to the front uh, after we pray. And we're going to have leaders come and pray for you that you would receive this new identity, that you would be reshaped and reformed into this identity. Because so many of us, our identities have been broken and shattered. So broken and shattered. If you'll bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you so much for the gift of your son into this world. We thank you so much for this incredible rescue mission that you have laid out and completed so that we, even though we don't deserve it, could finally have hope in you and hope for peace and hope for healing in you, Jesus. And today, Lord, as we enter into this season, I pray that you wouldn't let us forget who you are or who we are in relation to you. So if you're here today and you feel that you need a revival of that new identity in yourself, I'd like to invite you right now, would you come to the front as the band starts to play and let us pray for you that I, that identity would be re 